Hello! Welcome to Slate Money Food, our special Slate Money mini-season on the economics of the food industry. This week we are talking about technology. Yes, technology has invaded even the food industry, which is on some level depressing. We're going to talk about just how depressing that is and just how sophisticated and complex the tech stack is in today's restaurant industry with Jordan Thaler. Hi, Jordan. Hey, Felix. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. So I started a company in 2011 that ingests point-of-sale data from tens of thousands of restaurants, and we use data science to prescriptively fix problems in the restaurant business. And what's the name of the company? What's Busy. So Jordan Thaler from What's Busy, coming up on Slate Money Food. So Jordan, you are an expert on how on delivery, which is this new big thing, which is only getting bigger and more timely right now. Hey, expert is uh, maybe not the right term, but we <laughs> see a lot of data. We definitely see a lot of data working with a lot of POS companies. Okay. So first, what is a POS company? The POS is an acronym for point of sale. I know you were thinking something else. Uh, <laughs> and, and, it, and it's the, the nerve center of a merchant's operation. So traditionally, it's where all the sales data is stored. It's where employees clock in and clock out. It's got all the information you send to accounting and payroll. And it really is the, the central nervous system of the business. And you managed to get access to all of that information? Mostly what you find is that the POS industry in general is incredibly difficult. So, I mean, it's a Herculean task, really. It's like Sisyphusian. You are constantly doing inordinate amounts of work to build this brain of, of a local merchant and you get paid peanuts for the effort. And over time, many of the, the POS companies realized they had access to all this really rich, useful data that merchants and in general business ecosystems never had access to. And they would find us and say, hey, Jordan, we have this data. We know in theory it's valuable. We just don't have the resources or know-how to put it to work and execute something meaningful. So you take this and please do something for us. And, and that's how we've persisted over the past eight years. Okay, so you you have you, you know what's going on. You've seen what's going on. So let's talk a bit about trends. Is it true we all believe that everyone is grubhubbing and seamlessing and Uber Eatsing and basically getting food delivered way more than they ever used to in the past? Is this true? No, it's true. I don't know how much of that is really economic. I, I think with the Fed rate, increases or early decreases in 08, you saw the shore up of private capital, right, in the order of $2 trillion or something, the last numbers I saw. And that pushed a lot of companies to raise, in my perspective, obscene amounts of money to, to chase the idea of delivery. And you have a lot of subsidies, and so consumers aren't paying the true economic cost for delivery. And I think as you have market pressures come back in, into reality, you might see those economics become a little more transparent, and the consumer might not enjoy paying the true cost of that service. So so, so basically what you're saying is that Uber's been losing billions of dollars, Grubhub's been losing <laughs> billions of dollars, and all of those billions have essentially been going to help subsidize cheap delivery for people getting delivery. And if those billions of dollars of subsidies go away, then maybe the spike in delivery might go away as well. Well, Grubhub, I, I believe, has been profitable every quarter since 2015. So how is Grubhub making money if Uber Eats is losing money? What's the difference between them? My understanding is that Grubhub, well, primarily was an online ordering business. You don't have to get into the mess of last mile logistics and delivery, and they would still charge a pretty significant fee as that service provider. 
Uber and DoorDash really forced their hand into delivery, which is not a very profitable business. You can go look at a FedEx as a, as a comp, but Grubhub got into that business. I don't know if they break it out by delivery versus online ordering, but my suspicion is that the delivery business on a unit basis is actually not profitable at all. But for the time being, so long as the lovely venture capitalists are willing to throw money at us, we are ordering in much more. That's true? Yes, 100% true. So yeah, give us, give me an idea of how much more common is it now than it was, say, five years ago for people to, to get restaurant meals delivered? So what you find is roughly 30% of a restaurant's business has always been what we call off-premises. It was just typically someone picking up the phone and calling in an order. And now that segment of the population saying, well, I could pick up the phone, but I'm lazy. I'll just get online and click some, some buttons and do the same thing, right? The same net effect to me, except I do it digitally. So I think I don't wouldn't say that the off-premises is, is growing so much as it's cannibalizing the phone orders. So it's still a, a material part of a restaurant's business at 30% like really seems unchanged. It's just that more and more of that seems to be emanating from the online providers. So that that's surprising. And and the phone orders they would generally be delivery as well. They wouldn't be like pickup. Yeah, it'd be it'd be pickup. It would, would be, be just so, okay. someone calling in, yeah, someone calling in and saying, "Hey, we've got I want to order you know, five items from your menu." And then I would drive down there in my car and pick them up myself. That's right. And trying to pay someone to drive them to me instead of me doing the job of driving down there myself obviously significantly increases the cost of the restaurant of, of providing that service because if I do it, it's free. Yeah, that's right. So we've done something which was weirdly sort of economically sensible, which is that people would take the the that like driving bit of the equation onto themselves because they didn't really feel the cost of it. And we've turned it into... A significant cost center, which is draining billions of dollars out of venture capitalists' pockets. Yeah, I think the the music stopping. Right, I, I think you're seeing DoorDash is being pushed to go public. You're you're hearing about backroom talks with mergers and acquisitions between these guys that are all losing money. So I think the private markets have said, "Hey, we've given you enough capital. You need to go figure out the rest by yourself." And I my suspicion here is that consumers aren't going to bear the cost of of the true economics of delivery. And so it's going to be a, a service that's relegated to much smaller parts of the market for people that can afford to pay $10 to have a $5 hamburger delivered. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. So tell me about cloud kitchens and this idea that it is possible to make good money by setting up a sort of restaurant in the back of a warehouse somewhere and just delivering everything and having and having a hundred percent off premises it's great in theory i think scale is going to be the true test of, of whether this works part of the what i suspect right i'm not in these meetings but you've seen leaked uh, information like i know the leaked deck from deliveroo definitely hinted at this which was 
look, we're losing money as delivery providers. I'm Uber Eats. I'm, I'm losing tons of money. But if I verticalize the restaurant production, meaning I open this ghost kitchen, I look at my data and I say, hey, I see that chicken pad thai is selling really well in this zip code for this price point. Let me just go ahead and make it in my kitchen myself, call an Uber Eats pad thai and put it on here for 10% less than the nearest competition, can I sort of suck up that market, right? Can I become, you know, if my belief is that food is fungible, it's like fairly commoditized, and can I reach 80-20 in quality and be the lowest cost producer through scale and volume and, and just win this category? That's a thesis, right? We don't have enough data to really know. We've seen the stuff that Kitchen United has put out. We've seen some other other data points, and it definitely appears at a high level to make sense. But that's like the Mike Tyson, right? Like everything makes sense to get punched in the mouth. So who knows what's really going to happen? So let me take that apart a little bit. And let's start with this idea that food is fungible and consumers order on price. Is that something which has been, which you've seen in the data? We've not looked at that deeply, right? I definitely think you find cohorts of consumers that are price conscious and they think about, do I really want this? Or will I find a substitute that seems to be just as good in quality for a lower price? But we've really not gone deep enough to the consumer part of the equation to understand what's really happening there. Presumably, if consumers were that price sensitive, then they would still just be ordering for pickup rather than paying like ten, fifteen, twenty dollars for all of the various service and delivery fees that get slapped onto your typical Grubhub order, right? I mean, it seems that one of the weird things that we've seen in terms of this explosion of restaurant delivery services is that it can sometimes weirdly be more expensive to get a meal delivered than it is to go out and sit down and maybe even order a glass of wine and have a decent meal delivered to you by a server. Yeah, it's definitely true. I think that's right. You're also uh, framing things from a very logic-oriented worldview. I don't know. Most consumers aren't very good at math, so I think it takes them a while to figure stuff out. But you're you're right. If you do the math and you sit down and, and you put pen to paper, it's like, wait a minute. Maybe I should just go into the restaurant and get my, my meal and pay a tip and get a glass of wine because it will be cheaper. So that, I mean, I feel like that's good news for those of us who like the idea of restaurants who like the idea of ordering from small businesses and local maybe like you know immigrants into the community who have great food and recipes and we want to support them that somehow they're not in such a bad position as you might believe in a world where the intuition is often well like the big online giants are just going to steamroller everyone with their marketing budgets and their delivery and their logistics and and that kind of stuff i mean it's definitely challenging i mean food service and is you're manufacturing perishable goods like it's a very non-trivial operation right which is why you have such massive fragmentation like even mcdonald's which maybe the largest operator by unit count or by volume, they're still not very big from a total market perspective. They're like, you know, 15,000 US units out of, let's call it 650,000. So they're not massive. It's not Walmart who's got 25% of the grocery share. I think that there's a certain segment of the restaurant population that is, I would say, nearly insulated from 
the ghost kitchen and the delivery model. There are white tablecloth restaurants that are $50 per entree where you're just like, I'm not getting that delivered. I'm ruining the experience. I'm ruining the ambiance. Uh, Why? Right. So there are establishments in that category and it's, it's probably a dwindling category that are fine. It's the, a lot of the casual dining brands that have from the consumer's perspective, a commoditized offering where I think there's trouble. And you've seen the burgeoning of the fast casual category in general as a testament to the change in consumer eating patterns. And it's been it's been stressful for the casual dining brands. They look at that and say this is a real a real assault on our business model. Okay. So help translate these things for me because I'm a New Yorker who doesn't understand brands. <laughs> What is the difference between a casual dining brand and a fast casual brand? A casual dining would be like a Ruby Tuesdays or a Applebee's. And a fast casual would be the up-and-coming sexy concepts like a Zoe's Kitchen or a Cava. These newer brands that are a lower price point, it's, it's typically healthier food. It's a faster delivery model. So the real difference is if you go to a casual dining restaurant, you sit down and someone serves you. A fast casual is you might go to a counter and order and they'll call your number and you can get the food. So in terms of if you think of a sort of spectrum, maybe you get like old fashioned fast food at one end and then fast casual and then casual dining. And all of this has become what you might call like brandified, right? Is it fair to say that in most of these categories, you're really talking about large companies with brands and marketing budgets and multiple locations? I think the how you define enterprise, let's just call it like 10 or more locations, right? Those enterprise-type merchants, they represent about half the market. So half of the 650,000 locations are chain or enterprise groups, and the rest are SMB. There's definitely economies of scale. When you get into become a, a larger restaurant, you get middle management, you get purchasing power. There are things that work in your favor. And they're probably branding things that work against you. Like, yeah, you might have a large marketing spend, but your food quality is probably not on par with the restaurant owner who's got one shop that focuses on that all day long. And tell me about the relationship between the enterprises, especially the very big ones, you know, the the McDonald's of this world, on the one hand, and the last mile delivery people on the other, the Grubhubs and the Uber Eats and those guys. It's been comical, to be honest. So <laughs> you had these these delivery providers believing that, that what they made was so incredibly special and couldn't be replicated. And you would see them signing exclusive deals with these large enterprise restaurant brands. And then after six or nine months, the, the restaurant brand would realize, wait a minute, there's nothing special about what you do. You guys are the definition of a commodity. It's about pricing. And so I'll start to work with a number of you providers. McDonald's is gone that way. I think they were exclusive with Uber Eats. And now they work with a number of third-party delivery providers. So I really do think it's a massively commoditized space because venture capital or just private capital in general has been so easy to come by. People said, you know, I'm willing to bet my money in a fund that someone else can replicate this model. If I give them a couple hundred million or in some cases billions, they can go ahead and be the market winner. And that's what you have effectively. Is I think this is more an issue of just too much dry powder being in the markets than anything else. I mean, it does feel a little bit to me like like Amazon. I, I order something on Amazon Prime and then it arrives and sometimes it arrives via FedEx and sometimes via UPS and sometimes via USPS and it's like, I don't care. Yeah. And I, I, I don't get any brand loyalty to the brand that's making that delivery. They're just competing on price and Amazon will use presumably whoever's cheapest, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and second measure, which analyzes a panel data from credit card spend, they have some great metrics out there. They, they work closely with the journal and, and 
they show routinely that customers are, have no loyalty to, to an Uber Eats or a DoorDash, and they will just hop between whoever got the, the best promotion that week, and that's who they use. I mean, I guess that's the big idea, right, is that Uber Eats and DoorDash and Grubhub and those guys are all like saying, we want people to use us as their way of ordering food. If you're sitting at home and you say, I want food, then you call up Seamless, you call up DoorDash, and you and you pick a restaurant from there. And if you're going through that app, then by definition, you're going to use that delivery service. What you're not doing, it seems, is saying, I want to get McDonald's, or I want to get Chipotle, or I want to get like such and such specific restaurant down the street, and then ordering directly from them, and then that restaurant gets to pick whichever one is cheapest. I think it, if a consumer has a strong brand affinity, meaning they, they know they want to order from Chipotle, they might order from Chipotle directly to, to get loyalty points or rewards points or whatever that program is. I think most consumers don't do that. They like, I'm in the mood for XYZ cuisine type uh, that I can arrive here within 30 minutes at this price point. And then I shop and I was at an investor dinner in New York a few months ago where one of the investors uh, said, look, I have all three apps on my phone the DoorDash, the Uber Eats, and the Grubhub. And I find a restaurant and I just see who's got the lowest price for that restaurant. And that's the one that I order from. Wow. Yeah. I think there's there's no, the, the consumer has zero loyalty to any of these programs. I'm, I'm thinking in my head about like the best performing stock of the past 10 years is, is, is famously Domino's Pizza, that they've managed to sort of reinvent themselves as this technology and delivery company. Are they an exception in terms of sort of vertical integration somehow? Well, yeah. So for starters, yes, they can vertically integrate because pizza travels well and their model's always been heavily delivery component, right? So they have those economics well studied and have it figured out. The other thing going for them is the restaurant entry in general is massively unsophisticated. Like the idea of data science in a restaurant goes way over the heads of, of most operating executives, even at large public restaurant companies. It's pretty similar in retail too, which is why Amazon's done so well. Domino's has done a very good job of building a, a culture on data and engineering, and they spend money and they prioritize a lot of those efforts to eke out the nth degree of value from whatever service or product they're making. A lot of other restaurants or competition, just, they don't have that culture, and, and that's been a big problem. And I, I think over time it changes. I mean, one of the, the bull bets on the ghost kitchen model, right, so why Travis was able to raise $400 million for his cloud kitchens concept was, hey, cloud kitchens will use data and be much more intelligent about pricing and logistics and everything else, and that will, in turn, yield better margins for investors. And there's nothing preventing a large restaurant chain from doing that themselves. They just don't have the culture. It can't be overstated enough. It's really hard to attract good data scientists, good engineers, if they come to work for an organization that doesn't care what they think, doesn't care what solutions they come up with, if that's not prioritized, if you're not prioritizing on being a data operating company, you're just not going to attract that talent. And, and that's the real reason why Domino's wins is they've done a good job with that culture. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? 
That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The company that no one's ever heard of in this space is the way that I actually discovered you in the first place is Olo. Who or what is Olo? So um, POS companies, if we go back to how we started this conversation, POS companies oftentimes realize how little revenue they earn and how hard it is to rip out the point of sale because it's the central nervous system. And so they will often chase tangential features or products, I call them bolt-ons, to increase revenue for their core business. One of those has always been online ordering. And the POS companies just have never been able to do online ordering, let alone POS, uh, at a very you know, respectable product output. And Olo recognized the opportunity of online ordering. They saw it was going to be a, a massively popular and growing market. And they said, look, we can just build online ordering really, really well and be best of breed. And at some point, the restaurant operators who all use a point of sale will recognize that their point of sale can't do this the same way we can. And they'll need to use our services, especially as their customers are demanding more online ordering. And that's exactly the niche that Olo's carved out. They've become the best of breed play in online ordering. And they're in like 70 or 80,000 restaurants because of that. And they don't do the delivery. They just literally, they are the layer in between my computer and the cash register, basically inputting my order into that register. They've done a little more than that. So they've built this product called Dispatch which I want to say Noah announced on Jim Cramer's show Mad Money two or three years ago, which sort of is this marketplace of if you use the core Olo service for online ordering and then that customer wants a delivery, Dispatch can route that delivery to any number of third-party delivery providers and sort of market make and choose the provider that's going to have the fastest turnaround time, the lowest price, et cetera. And that's been something that's been pretty popular with uh, a number of large chain restaurants. And I think Noah's been very visionary in, in seeing how that's going to grow. Noah being Noah Glass, the CEO and founder? I have never met somebody in my time in this restaurant industry who has worked as hard as Noah to build something as powerful and as future thinking as Olo. He's finally reaping the rewards. And I, I tip my hat to the guy. He's just, gosh, he's put in 14, 15 years to get it to where it is. And uh, he's, a, he's a saint. <laughs> So what what else do we need to know about this space? Because it does seem to be this sort of brave new world of tech stacks and engineers and little and things which have to plug into other things and big data. And it seems so many miles away from what most people think about when they think about a restaurant, which is like you order some food and then they make you the food. Presumably there's a lot of different moving parts here. 
There are. I think that one of the biggest components that I think merchants will need to be cognizant about over the next few years is payments processing. So payments processing is an incredibly lucrative um, part of the stack now for for service providers. So you probably know this to some extent, but you go to a restaurant, you swipe your credit card, you spend $100, only 97 end up in the restaurant's bank account. The other 3% go to a number of different parties. And the problem, is, as we've seen, is the payments ecosystem, you know, the, the folks that earn that 3% do so in very ambiguous ways. And I mean, some of them border on, on malfeasance, frankly. And I think restaurants have been fleeced on this for a long time. And the point of sale and technology models are converging on payments. So that building software is hard. Doing payments is like your hamster could do it. So the the software providers and the vendors are realizing, hey, we need to get into payments. And some of those providers are doing so in a what I would just call an unethical manner in how they portray the fees and how they portray the value. And merchants who aren't any sophisticated parties really don't know how this works and are being taken advantage of. And it's a, just a non-trivial component of that entire stack. And as the world becomes more technological slash online slash, you know, requiring a certain level of sophistication when it comes to data science and tech stacks, does that give more and more of a natural advantage to the, you know, 50% of the market that's enterprise versus the 50% of the market that's mom and pop? Yeah, I think it does. So the biggest challenge for if, if you were to start a data science outfit today and sell some really great products and, and, and target merchants, it's just a lot easier to do distribution to the larger chains than it is to the SMBs. And you have to look at your customer acquisition costs. And at some point, you'd realize, I just can't justify selling to the SMB. And even if I could, the SMB probably wouldn't have the necessary sophistication to be able to use it. I remember talking to the Open Table guys many years ago. They were like talking about how incredibly powerful data from their reservations platform could be to restaurants. And it turned out that like none of the restaurants who used their software managed to use even like 10% of the capabilities because that's not what, you know, restaurateurs think like that. That's not how they think. Part of the blame lies with the with the open tables, right? So they're not doing a good enough job with their product to make it easy enough to use to show the merchant, hey, here's why data matters and, and make it simple to use, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, it's usually like, hey, here's a bunch of reports. I'll pretend you're an engineer too and you go figure this out. And that's not how it works. The other problem is merchants in general are, are very frugal and they don't pay for value. And so you could build a really good solution, but if the merchant doesn't pay for it, like what's the point? So you kind of have these you know, battling positions of, yeah, you could blame the vendor, but you also got to blame the merchant. If they're not, they're not going to pay for value because they don't realize it, then what's the point to spend the R&D capital to, to build a better mousetrap? That's where things like franchise operations have an advantage. It's not like you need to persuade every franchisee to spend money on this. You sell it once at the corporate level, and then the corporate level makes it back through compulsory payments from the franchisees, and the franchisees get the value, but they don't have to make the decision. Sometimes. It just depends on the organization. You'd be shocked at how many franchisors don't even require their franchisees to standardize on point-of-sale systems. And you'd ask, well, why does that matter? Well, if you don't have unified data coming from all your locations, how do you know if marketing's working? How do you know who's got labor problems? Right? Th- these are things where you need standardized data to answer these questions, and a lot of franchisors just still haven't figured this out. So from a tech perspective, who, who are the most sophisticated franchisors out there? 
You know, we don't sell direct to enterprise merchants. I, so I'd be a really bad person to opine on this. We just look at the data, right? So we partner with the POS companies. We see the data. In general, I think that everyone is really unsophisticated. I mean, we've seen data from, again, large public brands. Sometimes we were brought in by activist investors. And it's a disaster. These guys have no idea what they're really doing. I mean, and that's a little bit reassuring to me on some level. I kind of feel like running a restaurant on some level has always been a relatively kind of low-tech thing. And I kind of want to live in a world where restaurants are low-tech things and they're not, they don't require a huge amount of technological sophistication to be able to run. I want to be able to walk into a place and just say, you know, make me something delicious. And then that's their skill set is making something delicious and they serve me something delicious. But... Maybe I'm just being too much of a romantic here. I don't think that sentiment is wrong. I think the complexity of running a business today is much higher than it was even 10 years ago because the market is so saturated. And so really the the goal of technology is not to get you in in the back office and your computer figuring out what to do with spreadsheets. It's to automate parts of your business so you can focus on the guest experience. So you you can deliver that meal and that, that expectation that the customer came in with when he walked through your door. And technology providers in this space generally have not fulfill that end of the bargain. And again, part of it's their fault, but part of it's the operator who just doesn't want to pay for technology. I have one last question for you, which is the promise of, you know, the Grubhubs of this world. If I'm, if I am a mom and pop and Grubhub comes up to me and says, listen, you have a handful of people who are phoning you up and asking for delivery or asking for takeout and you can, and you'll get those. But then if you sign up on my platform, then a whole bunch of people who just go to Grubhub or pull up the Grubhub app instead of knowing about you will be able to discover you and will order stuff from you. And that's purely additional. Like it's just free extra custom for you. And almost so long as you kind of even break even on that, it's just more volume. You get to make more money, higher revenues. And that's just a brilliant offer, which I'm offering you. Like, is that true or is that like deeply misleading so i i think it was probably true in the early days now it's no longer a secret right and everyone's competing for a a top rank on grubhub or uber eats or just like they compete on on uh, google so it's it's just one new category with which to compete i remember reading an amazing article once about the top rated restaurants on TripAdvisor. And there's like a few restaurants, at least in New York City, but also in other cities where they have completely worked out how to get that coveted number one restaurant in X city on TripAdvisor. And and they wind up just doing really well with a bunch of tourists, basically. That, that, that's right. It's it's optimization, uh, depending upon how you view your channels. And I, I think you can do it on, on the Grubhubs too. You just have to be super cognizant of the cost, right? If every Grubhub customer is going to effectively cost you a 30% surcharge, then you need to figure out how do I get that customer onto my site? How do I cover the cost of that 30%? Is it coming out of my marketing budget for the first order? Do I mark up the price of my food 30%? So these are all things that the restaurants have to figure out and it's 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 not trivial. So are you like the big picture then? Are you, are you pessimistic about the, the prognosis for a mom and pop restaurant, like there's so many different moving parts that they need to be cognizant of that ultimately these big enterprises with multiple storefronts and chain franchises and brands are are always just going to keep on growing? Or uh, do we romantics still have a little chance? 
<laughs> well, every one of those large chains you talked about started as a mom and pop, right? So there's, I don't think you extinguish that part of the market ever. There's always going to be entrepreneurs out there looking to, to, to build new concepts and, and try new things. And some of them might be big and other ones might fizzle out. I just, I don't want my local restaurant to be an entrepreneur with a concept. I want my re local restaurant to be a cook with food. <laughs> but that's, that's just me. <laughs> Jordan Baylor, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Felix. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.